Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're joined by former NPR Moscow Bureau Chief Corey Flintoff. Talk about the war in Ukraine, situation in Russia, and related topics. Corey Flintoff is a former NPR foreign correspondent whose assignments included Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Haiti, Ukraine, and Russia. He was NPR Southeast Asia Bureau Chief and Moscow Bureau Chief. Uh, Corey Flintoff, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Hi, Tom. It's a thrill to be back. Thank you uh, very much for joining us. Um, so I just want to jump right in. You, I, I know you've been keeping up with events. Um, very interested as a former Moscow bureau chief and reported from a Ukraine as well. Uh, what do you f- think, first of all, of the continuing Ukrainian forces advances? The, the, these continue to surprise you? Um, yes, it does, frankly. <clears throat> you know, we knew that... Um, I mean, we've seen over the the months that this invasion has been going on that uh, that Russia came in with a, a rather unprepared army, and that they were met by Ukraine with a very well trained and well motivated army, uh, which was then subsequently supported by uh, the United States and other NATO countries. But it still comes as a surprise to me because. Um, uh, the Russians appear to be well dug in in these positions that are now being overrun by the Ukrainian army. And, um, it, you know, it was predicted by uh, military experts that I talked to that it was going to be very hard for the Ukrainians to mount an offense like this. And so what they've done in the last month or so has just been stunning. Um, uh, so I get—I don't know, it's hard to predict, but um, you would think maybe continuing to advance. At what point <clears throat> can Russia make a stand, and will this mobilization that Putin has done make a difference, do you think? Well, um, you know, it's, it's hard to say, and, and as I said, I've been talking to some military ex- experts and, and reading uh, a lot of, of what they have to say. And, uh, you know, there, there is a limit to what an offensive army can do, even a very successful one. Um, I talked to a lieutenant colonel uh, that I knew from Iraq the other day, and he said, uh, you know, the, the uh, rule of thumb is that, in, uh, that soldiers are good for about four days of in, intensive offensive fighting uh, before they need some rest and, and recuperation and, uh, and resupply. So the uh, Ukrainians have gone far over that now, and, you know, these military experts worry a bit that, uh, you know, they'll get overextended. But it seems that, uh, you know, the Russians have retreated so rapidly um, that uh, there may be, you know, a chance for the Ukrainians to advance further. And that's, that's very much to their advantage because winter is coming on. You can see from the photographs of the area that it's already turning fall and it, it gets quite cold in um, in especially in eastern Ukraine so uh, it's to the Ukrainians advantage to gain as much um, territory as they can before winter sets in and also before Russia is able to um, to train and equip these newly uh, newly drafted soldiers uh, and try to get them to the front um, Military people that I've talked to say point out that it, it is very difficult to you know to train and equip so many so many new newly mobilized troops at at one time, and it's going to take the the Russians some time to do that. And their their track record of training and equipping soldiers has not been good. 
Um, uh, you brought up winter. And, you know, traditionally, uh, you know, winter comes and uh, wars slow down. I, I think we have this conception, at least I do, that, uh, you know, high-tech warfare is not going to affect it as much. But uh, I'm, I'm guessing it probably does. Well, we saw, you know, we tend to forget that that this war has actually been going on for eight years now. And, you know, that it, it began in 2014 when, uh, you know, Russia... Uh, created this uh, this subversive uh, so-called separatist movement in the East and then backed it up with Russian troops. So this kind of fighting has been going on, you know, for eight years. Um, and it, it's true, it does always slow down in the winter. Uh, and it, it, what remains to be seen, you know, one of the reasons that it slowed down is that both sides were using Soviet-era equipment. Um, artillery and so forth with with limited range um, and and since they were unable to advance very well on the ground they had to stay in position and just fire artillery at each other uh, but it remains to be seen what this new um, uh, US and uh, NATO made equipment is going to do for the Ukrainians uh, the HIMARS systems and things like that could make it possible for them to keep up the fight uh, throughout the winter so that Western support, the Western equipment, uh, I think critical, and it, it, you think that will uh, will keep up? I guess I'm I'm also talking here about Western attention span. Yeah, that's true. Western attention span is a difficult thing, and and even though the Ukrainians have been proving themselves and proving themselves capable of using all this Western high tech equipment, um, we're starting to hear. Uh, more pleas for negotiations and for somehow placating the Russians and giving them some of what they want, which I think is absolutely wrong. Uh, you know, we saw this this notorious tweet from uh, Elon Musk the other day in which he put forward Kremlin talking points as a way of somehow achieving a negotiated peace in, in Ukraine. And, you know, that seems to me absolutely wrong-headed. I think the last time that we were on the show discussing this, um, you know, I, I've pointed out my view that uh, Russia has been at war with us since at least, you know, 2012. Uh, you know, hybrid warfare, uh, information warfare, uh, subversion, uh, election interference, and things like that. Uh, Russia is not going to quit. Putin is not going to quit, especially if he's somehow placated or somehow rewarded by being allowed to keep the the land that the Russians occupied in in much of eastern Ukraine and also Crimea. So uh, what peace negotiations might do is simply give the Russians a chance to regroup, reorganize, and rearm themselves and uh, become ever more dangerous in the future. Well, you you brought up the you know the the Russian uh, I guess you could call it propaganda information disinformation uh, that campaign seems to have been successful at least in some circles in the West. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you know there are there are certain myths that the Russians have been propagating, and uh, you know one of them, of course, is what Putin has said over and over again that uh, Russia is simply reacting to. NATO advancement, uh, uh, NATO moving closer and closer to Russia's borders. 
Well, I mean, what he's done, obviously, with this aggression in Ukraine is to increase the size of NATO, <clears throat> potentially, you know, by uh, the addition of Finland and Sweden. So one of the reasons that uh, NATO advanced toward the Russian border is that the former uh, Soviet satellite countries like Poland uh, were so eager to protect themselves from Russia that they clamored to join NATO. Um, that's true also of the Baltic states where, uh, that all share borders with Russia and were all extremely fearful that they could be invaded again. So, <clears throat> you know, NATO advancement is basically a reaction to uh, the fears of Eastern Euro European countries that uh, of, of, they were fearful about Russian aggression. So um, that's one of the myths, but that keeps coming up over and over again. And it it's, is proof that, as you said, uh, Russian disinformation and propaganda have been quite successful in the West. You say Russia's been at war with us, I guess the U.S. West uh, since at least 2012. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to not see it that way, right? We, life gets busy and uh, there's a lot of things happening. And, uh, you know, the, in some ways this is kind of a stealth uh, campaign. But you, you stand by that, I guess, uh, Russia's at war, war with us. I, I do, and I have to say that because, um, as you know, I was in, in Moscow for four years and I covered the, uh, the early parts of the war against Ukraine. And uh, I'm a Russophile. You know, I like Russians and I like Russian culture. <clears throat> I am, uh, you know, I, I think that the danger here, though, is the Russian leadership uh, under Putin and his cronies, um, you know, who are the, who are the real threat. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we're hearing about Putin is that he's become increasingly isolated uh, from his own advisors, except for a very small group of hardliners, you know, who seem to believe in this mythology that Russia has a sort of manifest destiny to, uh, to um, take over Eastern, or Eastern Europe and basically to, uh, uh, you know, to rule over over um, Eastern European countries, even if it's only by proxy. So, you know, I, I think that is, that's the sort of ever-present danger, and that, that's why I stand by that, my very strong opposition to um, anybody who would seek to placate this, this Russian leadership that I think is so dangerous to the world. What are you hearing uh, coming out of Ukraine from Ukrainians? Um, it, it, I think it used to be that uh, you know, there were Russian sympathizers, especially in the East. Has, has Putin's invasion solidified uh, Ukrainians under, under a national banner? Yes, I think it has. <laughs> I talked to um, a couple of my people that I, I worked with in Ukraine. One of them was a former fixer who I traveled through um, Donbass and eastern Ukraine with quite a bit. And he said it's almost overwhelming in the, um, in the unoccupied portions of Ukraine. Support for Zelensky and uh, support for the Ukrainian army, opposition to Russia, much more so than it was when I was there six years ago. Uh, <clears throat> what's happened is a kind of a demographic shift, though. Um, people in the east who were pro-Ukrainian uh, or anti-Russian have largely left the area, you know, many of them as refugees. 
So many of the people who remain in uh, Luhansk and uh, Donetsk provinces are Russian supporters and, uh, uh, you know, had close ties with Russia throughout. You know, when I was there, um, there were a lot of people in uh, eastern Ukraine who regarded themselves as Russians, um, you know, so that uh, when the separatist movement uh, took hold, uh, they basically uh, welcomed it. Um, and, you know, so that's that's a situation that has solidified because so many pro-Ukrainian people have been forced out. Um, in What are you hearing from Russia, if anything? Do you keep in touch with some folks in Russia? Yes, I do. Um, you know, including, uh, once again, people, that are friends of mine and people that I worked with in Moscow. And uh, there's a lot of distress over this mobilization. Um, there was even when I was there, there was always um, a lot of resistance, especially among middle class people, to having their sons taken away by the by conscription. And in Russia, of course, they they still use conscription um, as a means of uh, training large portions of the population, you know, giving them military training and so forth. And they call up about 130,000 or so new uh, draftees every six months. And they keep them for a year. And um, by all accounts, it's kind of a wasted year in many people's minds because they get very little training. Um, uh, They spend a lot of their time just doing KP duties on big bases. And there's a terrible history in the Russian army of, of uh, hazing and harassment. And every year there are cases, you know, where uh, where uh, young soldiers are beaten to death or, you know, just hazed to death in various ways by their superiors. So Russian parents are always very fearful of sending their kids off to the army, partly because they saw it as wasted time and partly because they were afraid they'd be harmed by it. Um, and so they would do everything possible to keep their kids from being drafted, um, including getting them various kinds of educational extensions um, and that kind of thing. And the object was always to keep your kids out of conscription until they're 27. And at that point, um, they were no longer eligible. So I have a, a good friend whose son is a doctor um, and who managed to stay out of the military by being in, in medical school and residencies. But um, every six months, of course, he had to face uh, scrutiny by his local draft board, and it was always a very fearful time. Well, now, with this general mobilization um, <clears throat> of so many people, and, and it appears to have been done so zealously and so carelessly in, in many ways that People who are absolutely not eligible for the draft were called up. Um, and so, as we've seen, there's more than 200,000 young Russian men have left the country in an effort to avoid the draft. Um, you know, and they're now cooling their heels in Kazakhstan and Georgia and places like that. Um, you know, and in some ways, these, these young people are probably the cream of the crop people who um, have good careers ahead of them in IT and things like that, um, they're lost to Russia now, at least for the duration of the war. So anyway, the people that I've talked to in Russia are, you know, terribly anxious about this. Um, If they have draft-age men in their families, they're worried about that. And 
uh, they're also worried about more and more Russians, I think, are becoming aware of the uh, worldwide implications of the war, um, not only of the uh, the failures of the Russian army, but, um, you know, the worldwide condemnation uh, of, of the war, uh, exposure of uh, war crimes and atrocities in Ukraine and that kind of thing. Um, so I think the, the Russian public is becoming more aware and more engaged. You know, one of the things about uh, the Russian public that was always said that there was a kind of a pact between uh, the people and the government. The government, If the government provided security and stability, the people were willing to pay for that by staying out of politics. But every once in a while, um, things like this intrude and... Uh, the general population is becoming more and more aware and more and more engaged with the question of whether they should be fighting this war at all. How are the Russian people getting uh, information? I guess it's, you know, state media obviously would have one version of events. Yes, and, you know, that that's true. And, and what most people get exclusively is state media, either through television, you know, which actually... Most Russians get their information through television, and that's securely controlled by the Kremlin. Um, other people get their information through the Internet, but, um, you know, because of this this sort of uh, contrived apathy that, uh, that that's true of people in Russia, uh, keep your head down, you know, don't get involved in politics, um, you know, as long as keep, you know, keep your focus on your family and your job and... Uh, and don't make waves. Uh, a lot of people who had access to the Internet were not trying to access information from outside the country. So that has changed, supposedly. Uh, I, I am hearing, you know, that, uh, that people are getting and sharing more information from outside sources. But also, surprisingly, uh, internal Russian... Uh, sources, and some of which are are close to the military and close to the Kremlin, are now talking about the Russian army's failures in Ukraine. Um, in some cases, it's hard right-wing, um, you know, government-supporting people who uh, got propagandists who got behind the, the war effort uh, very forcefully, you know, and, and people who come on TV every night uh, talking about the necessity of carrying on this uh, special military operation in Ukraine. But a lot of them recently have shown disappointment with the Russian army's performance, and uh, and very angrily so. Um, Margaret Simonian, who is the uh, head of RT, uh, the former Russia Today, which is actually broadcast in the United States, um, has been a, a persistent, hard-line uh, propagandist on Russian television. And she and some of the other very hard-line people have been very critical of the military lately, very angrily denouncing what they call cowardice or incompetence. And uh, that's a, so a lot of Russian people are now being exposed to this this view, which, you know, in its way is an anti-government view. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that, whether, uh, you know, whether that induces more people to be aware of the war and more people to be aware of, to, to question what the, what Russia's role is in all this. 
Do you think a, a, a catalyst, is it the mobilization? Is it the fact that it's, this is now touching, I don't know, middle-class families and uh, others than, than the, uh, I guess, professional soldier class, those families? Yeah, even before the mobilization, of course, people were becoming aware of, of the casualty counts. You know, uh, even though the the uh, Russian government and the military played down their casualties, um, people in in various cities in Russia, especially those that have big military installations, uh, are quite aware of the number of bodies that are coming back in body bags. Um, and even though it's not spoken of, people see how many funerals are being conducted, you know, and that sort of thing. So, and and there are in fact uh, a number of you know pretty sizable cities in Russia that are connected to the military. I mean, it would be like our San Diego, you know, or our Norfolk, you know, as far as as places that are very dependent on the military and very aware of what's going on. And those places typically become um, you know become informed about what's going on in wartime, even if the government's not saying anything. So there was that, and now I think the mo- the mobilization brought it home to a lot more people who are not directly associated with the Russian military, you know, and that that's sort of been a catalyst that's galvanized all this. Well, if you just joined us, we're talking with uh, former NPR Moscow bureau chief Corey Flintoff. Uh, we're talking about Ukraine and uh, Russia and related topics on the program today. We're grateful to have uh, Corey Flintoff with us once again. And as we head toward a break, uh, Corey Flintoff, I want to uh, make a pivot here to talking about the Corey Flintoff Student Internship Fund, <laughs> which uh, which which you uh, which you instituted, put your put your name on. Thank you for that. And that's which couldn't be dearer to my heart because the great thing about it is it's training a new generation of young journalists, and I'm so proud of them. And uh, and you uh, already you've uh, you've helped to uh, you know to fund the, that training for several. Uh, UPR interns, and that continues. And so what we're trying to do right now, ahead of the Day of Giving, which is tomorrow, you don't need to wait till then. You can go to upr.org right now and, and give. We need about $6,000 uh, more dollars to uh, to set up an endowment to, to turn this into the Corey uh, Flintoff Student Endowment. Um, and so just a little bit of help there would uh, would go a long way. You go to upr.org, upr.org, and... Uh, and uh, Earmark your your funds for the Corey Flintoff Student Internship Fund. So, Corey Flintoff, you you've done a lot there. What's uh, what's behind this? You you obviously have a passion for this, educating young journalists. I do, and uh, you know, I I have to say that with the Ukraine war, I've been in touch with uh, a lot of. Uh, well, I won't say a lot. I've been in touch with three uh, young freelancers who've been asking for advice about how you how you work in a in a hostility zone like this. Um, and it's wonderful to see, you know, people getting their teeth into a story and going out and taking risks to report the truth. I've had the opportunity to talk to uh, a number of the interns who've gone through the, the program at UPR, and it's the same thing with them. You know, you see enormous curiosity, enormous enthusiasm, um, a real desire to get the story, to get to the truth, and bring it to the public, and um, that's something that's that's so heartening. You know, it uh, it makes me feel good about the future of journalism. 
Well, uh, to give, just go to upr.org, upr.org, right on the uh, the front page to the upper right there. Um, there's a uh, there's a place where you can uh, give to the Corey Flintoff Student Reporter uh, Fund, and uh, that helps young journalists uh, uh, get their training at uh, at UPR. Um, well, let's take a break. We'll have much more with Corey Flintoff following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with former NPR Moscow Bureau Chief uh, Corey Flintoff, talking about uh, the war in Ukraine, situation in Russia, and related topics. Uh, Corey Flintoff uh, is a former NPR foreign correspondent. His assignments included Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Haiti, Ukraine, and Russia. In addition to being Moscow Bureau Chief, he was uh, NPR Southeast Asia Bureau Chief uh, as well. Um, and uh, I think remind people, uh, Corey Flintoff, you got your start up in Alaska, right? Yes, I did. And uh, <laughs> I worked in Alaska Public Radio um, in a number of uh, small stations. Um, you know, so I have a, a sense of what it's like to be a part of a, a, a regional a regional station or regional network, um, a statewide network, and to realize how important those stations are. Um, you know, the, a public radio station is basically a forum for the community, you know, to talk about things that are really important at the local level. And um, that's especially important now that, um, you know, newspapers and other news sources are under such terrible pressure. You know, we've seen so many newspapers close, especially local newspapers. And, uh, you know, public radio is taking up the slack for that kind of local discussion and local news. So I, I think it's essential. And, and that's by getting my start in Alaska, it gave me a good insight into how important those stations are. We talked earlier in the program about information. Uh, you know, there's information, disinformation, propaganda. It's, it's hard to tell sometimes, sort through it all. And uh, I, I would imagine that's compounded even further getting accurate information with the so-called fog of war. Uh, maybe tell me, t- talk a little bit about reporting from conflict zones, reporting from war, you know, the the, the kind of work that uh, reporters are doing right now in Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I encountered it in Ukraine. And, uh, well, you know, there are different situations. In, in Iraq and Afghanistan, for instance, you know, we were often embedded with uh, U.S. forces. And uh, our information, at least from their side of things, was much better because they're pretty transparent. And uh, they give you the opportunity to, to get out to the front lines and see what's really going on. In situations like Ukraine and Libya, where you're kind of you're at the mercy of, uh, uh, in, in Libya, for instance, you were at the mercy of rebel forces who are often very disorganized and um, and volatile. And, you know, you kind of didn't know... Uh, who you could trust, or in Ukraine, where um, at the time that I was there, at least, uh, when you went to the front lines, they were often very disorganized. Um, You know, they often had poor communications among themselves. And so the information about what was going on, and especially where the hotspots were, uh, was often pretty sketchy. Um, Nowadays, I understand they're much better organized, but in cases like this, you know, the warring factions always have a vested interest in not revealing their positions or revealing anything about their, um, you know, their uh, activities. 
uh, to outsiders, obviously. Um, and they also have a vested interest in disinformation, you know, in covering up their own casualties, you know, and uh, exaggerating the casualties of the other side. And, you know, the, frankly, uh, if you're involved in these war zones, they'll often take you to places that show their own victories and uh, the defeat of the other side, um, you know, but they don't take you to places where things are going badly for them. So it's very, very difficult to sort out what's going on, especially the closer you get to the action, the more difficult it becomes. Uh, one of the reasons, one of the ways that NPR uh, and a lot of news organizations try to get around that is to have people who are monitoring um, at the government level and trying to figure out what's coming out of the governments, in addition to the people who are at the front lines who are trying to see for themselves what's going on. You know, and if you can triangulate those those kind of uh, sources of information, you can sometimes get pretty close to what's actually going on. Right now in Ukraine, um, there are a lot of independent bloggers and observers who are using uh, satellite imagery and maps to figure out what's going on and uh, and who are geolocating, for instance, photographs that the two sides take at various battle areas and showing us um, in real time where the troops are and how they're moving. Yeah, that's fascinating. I want to return to this mass mobilization. Uh, Putin's calling it a partial mobilization, but it's it's affecting a lot of people, right? You you said you uh, you figure used was two hundred thousand, two hundred thousand men have uh, have have left Russia recently. Uh, we we see. I'm looking at photograph of uh, uh, you know a lineup of cars backed way up trying to get it into Finland. Um, New York Times had an article about they went and interviewed some Russian men in Kyrgyzstan. They'd crossed over to that relatively poor nation. Uh, they're going to try their luck there rather than go and fight in, in uh, Ukraine. Um, I want to ask you again, we talked about this a little bit, but to, to follow up on this, what what effect do you think this is going to have as, as young men continue to leave the country? Of course, that's a drain in talent. But, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but also, you know, those families that they left behind. Right. Um, you know, it's. I think it's primarily a psychological effect right now. You know, Russia is a very large country. It's 140, 44 million people, something like that. Um, so obviously, you know, 200,000 people leaving the country is, you know, in, in statistical terms, it's nothing. But in terms of, uh, you know, for one thing, the, the brain drain, the fact that that these are often uh, better educated, um, you know, people with a lot more uh, skills and so forth who are leaving. That is a significant loss. Um, the fact that the families know that, um, you know, the one one young man leaving the country probably affects the, the his his extended family quite a lot, you know. Um, so that's a psychological drain. And uh, you know, they're in general. What it does is increase awareness of the of the war and uh, the seriousness of the war, and I think that's important. Mm. We also talked about this earlier. I want to follow up on this as well. I, I wonder uh, eventually if you think this is going to be effective. But talking about uh, conscription and, and injecting many, many more men on the Russian side, and I'm thinking of the Russo-Finnish War of the 1930, 1939. 
where where kind of some parallels here where where Finland put up a, a surprisingly good fight, better technology, but in the end, the Soviet Union just flooded the zone with soldiers and was able to to get their ob- objective. I don't know how effective you think this is going to be. Maybe you know in the spring, for example. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, it was a you know it was a Russian victory, but it was a Pyrrhic victory because they lost so many troops and so much equipment, um, and it cost them very dearly. Um, you know, and the same the same is true in Ukraine in a way. You know, I mean, uh, Russia can muster overwhelming numbers. It still has a, a huge arsenal of weapons that it can use. Um, you know, even though it's it's taken what are by all accounts, you know, really serious losses. Um, you know, so if Russia has time to reconstitute and uh, rebuild its its forces with these new conscripts and everything, it, it yeah, it could be um, it could be a real danger. Um, so it's a question of how much Western governments are willing to keep uh, providing the Ukrainian army with weapons and uh, frankly, to keep providing them with better and more advanced weapons. I think that's something that, um, that the American government and uh, and Western NATO governments are thinking about. You know, uh, for a while, the, the government was, uh, the American government was trying to uh, reduce what they saw as the danger of, of having a direct war with Russia uh, by restricting the kinds of weapons that would be given to Ukraine. I think now with Putin threatening to use nuclear weapons, um, you know, I think uh, the United States and these other allies have to think very hard about uh, providing Ukraine with the wherewithal to really keep up this advance. I think they should. I think that the risk of, of, of Russia using nuclear weapons is fairly low at this point, and that's been echoed by some of our military leaders, you know, former General uh, Petraeus and and former General Mark Hurdling have both spoken uh, in favor of, you know, um, a more robust support for the Ukrainian military and sort of downplayed the, the fear that this might develop into a nuclear conflict. Another big potential uh pressure point is, is, of course, energy, right? And we're heading into winter. Uh, what do you think is going to happen there, especially with the European nations uh, presumably still needing Russian natural gas? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, and of course, the sort of dramatic development was the, um, the sabotage on, on two uh, gas lines, you know, in the, in the Baltic Sea um, that, were, that were blown up, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. Uh, Nord Stream 2, neither of these were actually supplying gas to uh, Europe at the time. Um, Nord Stream 2 hadn't been finished, and uh, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline has been uh, shut off for various various reasons that seem pretty spurious to me. But the Russians wanted to demonstrate that they could cut off gas supplies to Europe at will and that they were willing to do it. Um, there are actually other pipelines that go through Ukraine that have not been touched so far and that are very important, for, uh, especially for Eastern European countries. Um, and that pipeline hasn't been touched or even talked about very much. But um, 
I, I think that's something that's got to be watched. Um, will the Russians try to sabotage gas supplies? And in the hopes that by putting pressure on Europe, and especially there's been a forecast of a pretty severe winter this year, um, I think they're hoping that uh, that Western Western nations will get tired and uh, of of the sacrifices they have to make, and then well, they'll withdraw support for Ukraine. Um, I think that would be a terrible mistake because Russia has shown that it's willing to use uh, energy supplies as blackmail. Uh, no matter what, you know, it will. They've been doing it for years, um, both against Ukraine and against Europe. So um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to placate uh, the Kremlin in, in any way by uh, by giving giving in to this blackmail for energy. Let's uh, head toward another break and uh, tell you again your opportunity to uh, to to help support uh, students in journalism by giving to the Corey Flintoff Student Internship Fund. And uh, you can uh, just go to our website, upr.org, upr.org. Top of the page there to the right uh, is uh, a headline that says, Support Student Journalists at UPR. Just uh, click on the Give Now button. And uh, we would like to raise uh, about $6,000 more. We can uh, turn this into an endowment, and it'll be uh, it'll go forward in, in perpetuity. Um, based uh, upon the generosity of uh, Corey Flintoff, who's who supported this and put his name on this, so thank you, well, Corey Flintoff. We, you had Tom, as you know, we're tantalizingly close. Six thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars could make this into a permanent thing, and I'm, you know, I've got my fingers crossed. I think we can we can raise that kind of money. Uh, so upr.org, upr.org, and uh, and click on that Give Now button, and you can. Uh, you can really help there with uh, w- w- whatever amount you you help uh, students to uh, to learn this craft. And uh, as we go to break, Corey Flint, I want to ask you about this. We we had a young uh, lady on um, this program a few months ago, and uh, having her tell her story, which is very interesting. She said her parents didn't want her to go into journalism, uh, in part because they uh, you know they were kind of on the on the other side, and and uh, from her. It, uh, and uh, thought that, uh, you know, they believed it was all fake news. That was the, their reason. Uh, other young people that I've talked to maybe don't want to go into journalism because uh, more difficulties these days becoming journalists in this in this day and age. Although I do talk to a lot of young people who say, I'm, I want to. The, the idealism is still draws them. What do you hear when you talk to young people? Um, you know, I hear the same thing. It's, it's the idealism, uh, you know, uh, and I, because I have, I, I, you know, I hear from people, young people, fairly often asking me what I think the prospects are for journalism. And, um, you know, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I might have been a lot more pessimistic. But today, I'm feeling that uh, the opportunities to do journalism, you know, not only in the traditional ways, you know, through newspapers, for instance, or through broadcasting, but, uh, you know, in so many other platforms that, um, you know, there's still the critical need for information. You know, I mean, we can't live as citizens without having good information, um, especially at the local level. But, you know, we have to know what our nation is doing, what the world is doing. That's all so important. And that kind of news is going to need to be done one way or another. And there's always going to be a demand for good journalism. So 
that's that's why I think the internship program is so good. It's hands-on journalism. Your listeners will hear the work of these interns, um, you know, as they develop their skills, and you can you can be a part of this. So support young people going into this critical field uh, by supporting the Corey Flintoff Student Reporter Fund. And you can do that by going to upr.org, upr.org, and uh, click on the Give Now button up at the upper right of the, uh, of the page. Uh, let's go to another break, and uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with former NPR Moscow Bureau Chief Corey Flintoff. We're talking about uh, the war in Ukraine, the situation in Russia, and related uh, topics. Corey Flintoff, I want to talk about the protests. There, there have been sporadic protests, especially on this uh, mass conscription. Those seem to continue. A high cost to those participating. You, you might go to jail. You might be sent directly to uh, Ukraine. Yet these continue. Um, uh, what's the meaning here? Do you think? I think we, we, we tend to you know, in the West. Uh, at least some of us hope. This might uh, lead to regime change. Probably not likely. I don't know. What say you? Um, you know, the, you know. I talked about the sort of the Russian apathy. You know, the the engineered, deliberate uh, apathy of the Ru- Russian public. Um, but throughout the time that I was in Moscow, uh, I attended dozens and dozens of protests of one kind or another where people with a great deal of courage got out into the streets and marched or got out and displayed protest signs, even though um, the repressive machinery of the, of the Russian police is so efficient that it would almost guarantee that there would be arrests and sometimes beatings at these protests. So uh, people showed a great deal of, of courage, and uh, that was then. You know, when things were actually less repressive, uh, you know, or a little bit more, there was a little bit more leniency. Today, as I understand it, and I was just, again, talking to a Russian friend of mine, you know, the the repression is absolutely vicious and ruthless. And uh, a lot more people are being arrested. Um, they're being, those who are tried are being given just outrageously long sentences, Um in notoriously bad prisons. So the people who are, who are standing up and protesting these days are showing enormous amount of courage. Um, it's, it's just hard to convey how dangerous that is in the current in the environment. Um, but as you say, there's just not enough people who are willing to, to do that kind of thing um, when they're faced, you know, with the with the sort of terrible repressive machinery of the Russian state. And um, so, no, I don't think that uh, if there's regime change in Russia, it probably is not going to come from the grassroots. Um, I do have a little more hope, and maybe this is just a fantasy, that uh, that people at the at the top of the, of the Russian government will get tired of this hopeless and, and desperate enterprise of the war in Ukraine. And um, you know, they, there's potential that they could they could engineer regime regime change from within. I don't know whether that's possible or not, but um, I should think that a lot of people in the upper military levels and upper political levels are are getting pretty sick of the losses that Russia has been suffering. 
There's, there's a lot of ways this could end, and this could go on for a long time, right? I wonder, you know, from a, among a, many different alt, alternative endings, uh, you know, do you think this ends up in a frozen conflict like Transnistria or one side or the other wins or a, a brokered uh, compromise where Russia keeps some of the territory? What do you think most likely? You know, the you know, I, I I would have been more willing to accept the notion of a frozen conflict or some kind of brokered uh, uh, brokered peace deal um, early on in in this in the current conflict. You know, early in the spring or summer. But um, Ukraine has shown such unity and such resolve, and Russia has inflicted so so much damage and so many horrible atrocities on the Ukrainians that it's really almost impossible for me to see how a Ukrainian government could negotiate with Russia and accept anything less than the full return of all its territory, including Crimea. You know, I mean, there needs to be more than that in my mind. There need need to be war crimes prosecutions. There need to be repression. Uh, There need to be... um, uh, uh, reparations for all the damage that Russia has done. Um, you know, and I think that, so it seems to me that negotiations at this point are a non-starter. I don't see how this can be resolved in that way. So it might be a, a kind of de facto frozen conflict in that uh, Russia withdraws to some sort of defensible positions and then brings up enough new um, new recruits and equipment to defend those, um, you know, and we fall back to um, something like what existed before the most recent Russian invasion, uh, where the two sides are, are shelling each other from fixed positions and there's very little movement and uh, it becomes a low-grade conflict then. Well, we reached uh, the the end of our time here. Um, just to mention, as we end, the uh, you have an opportunity to help uh, some young journalists to get their start uh, by supporting their training here at Utah Public Radio by supporting the Corey Flintoff Student Reporter Fund. And uh, so you go to upr.org, upr.org, click on the Give Now button, and uh, support this fund. We are uh, hoping to raise $6,000, and that would help us to turn this into a in-perpetuity endowment, the Corey Flintoff Endowment. Um, so upr.org is the place to go and uh, give to support young journalists. Uh, and Corey Flintoff, so thank you so much for your support for young journalists, first of all. As always, Tom, it's a thrill to be on with you and to talk about the uh, internship program Um yeah, as I say, it's dear to my heart, and I appreciate all our listener support that makes it possible. And thanks for joining us uh, on the program today. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure to have you on. Great. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Corey. Appreciate that. Corey Flint, uh, former NPR Moscow Bureau Chief, has uh, been with us. And again, the, the website, upr.org, upr.org, support the uh, Corey Flintoff Student Internship Fund. Um, And we go out as we do on Wednesdays with the Beehive Archive. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. If you or your dog have ever gotten sick drinking untreated water, you've probably heard of Giardia. Chlorine is regularly used in water treatment plants across Utah today to fight this deadly water parasite. 
but some of its earliest opponents worried about its effect on human health and pickles. Find out more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. As snow melts and flows into Salt Lake Valley's water system, it passes grazing animals collecting parasites and germs, like Giardia. How do sanitation plants ensure entire cities don't get sick? It all started in the early 1900s. As Utah's cities on the Wasatch Front became more urbanized, abdominal diseases were avoided with the introduction of chlorine in our water. But chlorine faced public scrutiny from across the state, and even from the local pickle company. Early residents of Utah were familiar with the occasional stomach upset, sometimes even dying from it, and summing up the symptoms under the general umbrella term dysentery. But scientific research in the 1920s using microscopes found that stomach illnesses were actually caused by microscopic critters found in our water. Among the worst of them was Giardia, a parasite easily killed by chlorine. Salt Lake City was one of the first places in Utah to use this new sanitizing technology. Local water officials ordered tanks full of chlorine gas by telegraph and installed them at Parley's Canyon Reservoir and the 1300 South Conduit. The city health officer reassured residents that the chlorinated water was still as pure as it is possible to make it, using only three-fourths of a pound of chlorine for each million gallons of water. But people still had their doubts. One of the biggest opponents of chlorine was the Utah Pickle Company, which discovered its pickles had trouble pickling with chlorinated water. The Salt Lake Telegram reported in 1930 that chlorine water halts bootleggers, but it also annoys pickle makers, showing that any fermentation process was halted by the powers of chlorination. The Utah Pickle Company eventually switched to well water, but even up until the late 1960s, citizens across Utah presumed a connection between chlorine and dying fish, nausea, and depleted vitamins. This led to sanitary engineers and health officials assuring locals of chlorine's effectiveness in stopping the horrible disease of Giardia and other bacteria. After all, is a small price to pay to eliminate dysentery from our everyday talk. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.